That's a good question. They say like in every relationship, there's somebody that doesn't eat the animal fat and somebody that does. This is another question. Who in the relationship would be able to live with themselves after having murdered somebody? Because for a balanced relationship, you need at least one person that's willing to take a life. That's well, that was my that was my whole contention when I was asking you this, yeah. which was an objectively insane thing for me to like buttonhole you as a neighbor about, and be like, <laughs> "Look, between you and your wife, which one of you would well, have no, less guilt no, about no, no. a justifiable homicide?" This is revisionist because history. What that was not your question. You came to me with a statement that was. We've talked about this and we think you would be the one that could kill somebody and live with it. And I was like, actually, no, Mahali is pretty all. good. That's revisionist history. Or bad, I guess. This, this is re- total revisionist history. I said, I believe it would be Mahalia. Just like I said, I believe it could it would be me rather than Patrick. Um, Maybe we could all kill. Well, I mean, like, look, part, part, of the, part of the point of the Oedipus story for Freud, and I think why it matters and is more than just a complex about gender identification, right? Though that's there. The reason why the Oedipus story still gives you goosebumps, still gives some people goosebumps when you see it, and it gives me goosebumps when I see it, right? Um, Even if you don't believe in that it like ever happened, it's kind of the same way that like the Eucharist gives some people goosebumps if they're brought up in this tradition, right? In, In the sense that this is this continually repeated ancient text that that mobilizes these themes and characters but that ultimately has to do with repetition and with guilt Mm -hmm. these performances whether they be the performance of the eucharist or the performance of um oedipus rex at like the local community theater you know in different ways are both dramatizations and enactments of it right they uh and i think that that that's a powerful thing that's just what i'm saying so what i'm saying is on the question here is that like and the question of who among us could kill justifiably with the least guilt. Right. But what I, what I would say here is that what, what, what the Oedipus story does, what the Christian story does, and also what life under capitalism sort of generally does, is, is it gives us a situation in which we are all existing as if we had committed a murder, right? Mm, or as if we've been sort of contaminated with guilt and we have to work through it. Which so, character from succession do you think could kill without feeling guilt? Well, if we already had the answer well, we already, there. Yeah, yeah, we already know. Well, we, well he felt a lot of guilt. Yeah, but then he literally memory hold it. Yeah. Um, you think he did at the end, though? That was, yeah, he had a psychotic, full, full up, like, denial of it ever happening. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, that he, was the most surprising, well, okay, there's was the second most surprising moment to me. The first being <laughs> the, the part, which I feel like, n- not to be all like, mm-hmm. nobody's talking about this, but like, why aren't more people talking about the fact that like, we get a big reveal that Kendall is impotent. Like that, that, that he is, he is symbolically castrated and it's just like a little bit. It's, and then he immediately goes for his brother's eyes. Yeah, like, yep. I mean, he is, he, he is, he's symbolically castrated. He's the end of the paternal line. He is a murderer, but a murderer who, unlike Oedipus, who know who knows that he's guilty but doesn't know who he's guilty of killing yeah right he didn't he knows who he killed but denies that it happens and instead of blinding himself as Oedipus does mm-hmm. he fucking tries to blind his brother brother like it's yeah. all about the psychotic exculpation mm-hmm and the best part is the setting of him denying his guilt there at the very end yeah. is when he's trying to role play a CEO of taking over he's trying to be who his father 
would expect him to be well after his father's death. And yes. in doing so, that, that involves swallowing the guilt of murdering a, chi- a child, a, a young man. I, I also like thing. that yes. it's set like literally in a, like it made me think of the like people who live in glass houses yes. because everything is like yes. literally clear. Um, Patrick, what is the, the the intro thing that you wanted well, to Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you one second, but also okay. just, uh, uh, the theme, a, a point I want us to, I definitely want us to make, to draw that line, but, but also later to talk about Logan's guilt, right? Because Logan has omnipotence of thought guilt. Right, like, and it's only revealed in the second to last episode what it specifically was, Mm. right? But but like, literally, yep. Logan as although it might be real, we don't know. It might be real, but but but, but Logan is he brings the plague. He brings the plague. He brings the plague home, and he kills his beloved sister. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. And it's under that guilt Mm -hmm. that everything else, sort of the family, sort of proceeds. But yeah, I'll tell you that under the sign of, of yeah. that, you know, murder or like indeterminate yeah. murder. Yeah. So I'll tell you this: the story I have is 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 of uh, th- th- there were a bunch of a bunch of dudes in my uh, in my high school. You know, lots of lots, lots of kids from Staten Island, and a lot of them would uh, they were they were all brilliant and wonderful people and very sweet and kind. But but, but part of what they did with uh, I think of a specific crew of four or five guys in different years who hung out together is that they would lean into the stereotype and perform a kind of like slacker thing. Um, is that a Staten Island stereotype? Uh, it was actually the acronym for a club at my at my high school. Um, but but that's neither here nor okay, there. Okay, I'm sorry, yeah. I just didn't know what was happening in terms. But of it was the a slacker thing, and that they didn't do the reading, they didn't do the work, they didn't really care. They were more about drinking and going to the beach, etc. Even though they all did the work and did the reading, right? But sure. like later in the semester, because you move chronologically, the class is reading Hamlet. Okay. Right. And as we all recall, right, there's a strong edible thing going sure, on. Yeah, just, just sure. for, no spoiler alert for anyone who's unfamiliar with Hamlet, but but young Hamlet is, you know, his uh uh Claudius and Gertrude uncle and his mother are, you know, having some affair after killing his father, etc. So, you know, Hamlet wants to one reading is that he has edible desire for for Gertrude. Again, at the end of the sessions with Hamlet, the students like, hold on, Mr. D, Mr. D, I I, I gotta process this. Are you telling me that this guy's stepfather killed his father, is sleeping with his mother, and that instead of killing his uncle, this guy's thinking about killing himself? <laughs> I, I I don't even know. And then and, and Mr. D is like, yeah, yeah, that's about right. And, and this kid says, I had to piss all over him. And, and, and Peter's like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait, I'm sorry. You can't say you would piss all over them. No, 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 no. It's Oedipus all over again. If it isn't clear from that today, we are talking about succession and uh, specifically about the Oedipus complex and the Freudian idea of the primal father. Uh, I probably should go without saying, but if you don't want spoilers for succession, turn this podcast off right now and, and, and stop listening and come back when you have finished the entire series. It's worth watching fresh. Um, well worth watching for <laughs> Dan says this because he's just finished his like second third I don't know how many uh, 
Um, we, it's embarrassing. The number is pretty high. Okay, it's we're just gonna say times. we're gonna say rewatch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you're listening to Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin. I'm uh, Kendall Roy. I'm sorry, Patrick, Patrick <laughs> Blanchfield. I'm Roman Roy. I'm sorry, Dan Yowell. Does this make me shiv? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't feel that. I, I yeah. Well, anyway. But yeah, which character are you? <sighs> that feels very personal. Uh, yeah. You got some Tom, though. Oh, rude. Why? Isn't that rude? Tom, Tom's adorable and very redeemable. Say, say more about that, Patrick. I think... Is this because I said that of of all of us, I could kill a person and have the least guilt (laughs) if it were justified, which Uh, I stand by, by the way. I I don't know what to say to that here. (laughs) (laughs) What I will say is I do think about um, Tom as having a, though he certainly lives a coastal lifestyle now, he has roots in the the greater sort of Chicago, Midwestern area. Oh my God. He's from Minnesota. Right, but he's got a certain- That's not anywhere near Chicago. Fucking East Coast. I mean, feet, it's certainly like, near than, I don't know. It, it's near than man, the when Hamptons I moved, or when LA. When I moved to the East Coast in, for college, I discovered that like people from the East Coast literally think Chicago is in the middle of the country. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not. It's thing, not yeah. in the middle of the country. It's like much, much closer to the East Coast. But you are also very good at navigating institutions. You can deliver a perfectly- cutting line about say someone's overly capacious purse if necessary, but also <laughs> can write an email uh, or, or, or just move with a, a sleight of, of hand uh, to, to, to produce massive institutional knock-on effects. You can get your way. Yeah, but Tom's whole thing is that he, I mean, at least at the end, he's a pain sponge. That whole that that's the whole thing. He's he, he'll be the front man. Describe yeah. a teacher in so many words. Yeah. Oh, I suppose that's true. Yeah. I suppose the task of of the educator is the task of the pain sponge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you were complicit in covering up the death of all those women on that uh, <laughs> tour boat, right? So, I mean, there is. All right, tell me how you really feel. Okay, okay. what well, we're gonna before before Patrick assassinates my character further, um, we're gonna do a couple of things. Patrick is gonna tell us a little bit about the Oedipus myth itself and sketch out a couple of of themes and through lines. Then I'm gonna take us through the Oedipus complex in Freud's writing. Um, yeah, let's do it. Can I just ask, but before we dive into the yeah. topic of Oedipus, like what? When in succession were you like, oh my God, this is what this is about? Oedipus? Yeah. How how early or late was it? No, no, it's a great question. It's a great question. Um, I feel like, I mean, Patrick loves the phrase vulgar Freudianism and yeah. I almost feel like you can't watch succession without, without a little vulgar Freudianism. So I mean, I feel like episode one, like yeah. the, the premise of it um, asks you to read it psychoanalytically. But I feel like I I really got convinced. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say this is like the key to unlock this. I actually, and we'll, we'll get into this later. I think like the, the concept of like the phallus and what it means to like have the phallus as opposed to being like symbolically castrated, that that is if there's any sort of key psychoanalytic theoretical formulation that's going to like unlock, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes, like unlock this text. Um, That's what it is. So 
lots of people on Twitter and also people off Twitter, I feel like got really, really upset about the idea of like the sort of collective identification with the Roy kids among the viewers. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Familiar with lots with of cries of, but these are bad people. But the but these are bad people, and then the but you I, I you know, and and I guess um, for me the reason that this is so resonant here, other than like the, the structure is is literally set up to to be about like um, the need to to dethrone um, the father and take its place, um, is that for like in some ways whether or not you believe in the Oedipus complex is like a litmus test for whether or not you're a Freudian. Um, I, I'm painting with a broad brush. Yeah. Okay. I'm painting with a broad brush, but I think that's, I think that's true. Um, and for Freud in a way that, you know, is very different from how I would tend to think about humans. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who's going to be like, there are universal structures that govern human nature. I'm not going to use like any of those terms in, in a way that's that, that doesn't have air quotes around it. But I do think that a really nice rejoinder to the question bothering a lot of people about like, why do we identify with like Roman Roy? Um, you know, because like all of these people are clearly monstrous and have nothing in common with the viewer and they don't even make like wealth look aspirational is the idea that there is some sort of like isomorphism between the struggles that we are forged in and like formed by and theirs. Like that to me is like a pretty good answer um, for why you might want to think about because, because Oedipus is so integral for Freud, for, for our coming into being. And it also to get abstract for, for, for a second, the Oedipus complex is all about desire um, and it's all about triangulation. Um, and so for me, the question of succession has, has always been like, what does it mean to want something? And can you ever want something just cause you want it? Um, I mean, Lacan would, would say like, desire is always the desire of the other. And like, the, I think the, um, I'm going to stop talking in a second and mm. let other people chime in, but like, there's something about like the end of this show where where you see that profoundly like roman is free because he never really wanted it yeah yeah um shiv wants it because she wants her brother to not have it and um kendall wants it because it is what he has been always told to want i don't know does that answer your question yeah absolutely yeah i, I think just for my part i think two things are important one like i don't know if like I, I don't I wouldn't say that the show is like about the Oedipus complex to core, right? No, right. No. Um nor still that even that the question really is like if we do or don't believe in the Oedipus complex as a bunch of people here, right? What I think we could say, and and let's you know, let's stipulate this is a calling back to one of the first things we did, one of the first episodes we talked about overdetermination, yeah, right? This yeah. is a overdetermined text. This is four seasons. I think there, it's an amazing cultural artifact. You could read it in all sorts of ways. You could do all sorts of Marxist readings of it. You could do it in terms of family dynamics. You could do it psychoanalytically. You could do it in a million different sure, ways. Sure, right? Media theory. Yeah you, could, yep. yeah, you could read it as being about, you could even emphasize what the existence of this thing means in relationship to like, "Quote unquote laced capitalist prestige TV cultural production." Sure, right? sure. So it's. I don't think that 
we uh, have to commit ourselves to being like, well, this is about the Oedipus complex, nor still have to pretend that uh, this is this would be a very flat way of doing it. The, the people in the writers' room, you know, all like, oh yes, this is about the Oedipus complex. Though, no, but no. by the end, they did. The, by the end, there were some pretty like wild call-outs to that. But, but what I do think is important, and why I think the Oedipus complex is important, right, is that why the Oedipus complex is so important for Freud, we'll get into more later, but also why the Oedipus complex has been so significant for other subsequent psychoanalytic thinkers is that the Oedipus complex functions as a, as a myth or, and a myth, not in the sense of like a, the way it was say a myth for the Greeks when they performed it or saw it in in the theaters, but as a kind of specimen story or like almost like the ultimate specimen story is I think a phrase that uh, Shoshana Feldman, the psychoanalytic critic uses for psychoanalysis, but also for a certain uh, aspects of the human condition. Yeah. Uh, uh, difficulties involving being born in families, uh, dealing with your own desires versus the limitations put on their desires versus like the overly large influence of certain people above all your, your parents in your life yeah. and, and, and et cetera. So at that point, what the Oedipus complex captures and dramatizes is something that has traction for human beings, mm-hmm. whether or not they know who Freud is, arguably, or whether sure. or not they know what the Oedipus complex is. So we're, I think we can use it, the Oedipus complex to look to, we can use it, we can use a show to think about the Oedipus complex and learn a little bit about the Oedipus complex, but we can also use the Oedipus complex to think about some of the things that are very interesting in the show and to do that in a way that is not reductive and that will also allow us to think about the other half of, I think, what makes this really interesting is the the way in which the Oedipus complex and that Freudian account of basically the ways in which children have to struggle with parental and above all paternal influence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, relates to another primary figure of the father and Freud, which is also drawn from the Greek corpus, right? And it's this idea of like the old father, like Kronos, the the sure. the, the primordial father, mm-hmm. right? The father who destroys his children and who, and who the children must rebel against. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. to the extent- The mythic, to wh- awful father. Yeah. yeah. And that is Logan Roy. Like, exactly. like Logan Roy is the primal father that, that needs to be destroyed and that requires like, you know, I mean, Patrick will talk about this in a little bit, like, but in Totem and Taboo, we get like this idea of like the band of brothers and they have to, I mean, you see this over and over every time there's like a, you know, climactic boardroom scene in succession is like the, <laughs> the attempt to get like the libidinal bonds between all the siblings together to collectively overturn this Awful, and I mean that like awe, mm. like with the the sense of the word awe, like the the, the primordial awful father, um, mm. who you know, and and the task is is to overthrow him. But of course, that once he's overthrown, what is there to be done? Which is also yeah. a lot of what season four is about. May I suggest that we actually get into Oedipus the story, yes. and then Oedipus. Yes. The complex. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think just to to, to really sort of uh, to, to to link this and tie this in, right, is that, and, and to put in the word for, what one last word in favor of vulgar Freudianism too, right? Because like, I understand, let's just, I want to get this out of head, out of the way, because some people will be like, well, Freud has these, these silly theories about how fathers are all monsters. And at the beginning of time, there was this evil monster father who wanted all the women, et cetera. Like, <laughs> let's just- I wanna, And that's in the text. Yeah, okay, that, it's that, there. It's in the text. 
Uh, I would also argue that anthropologically speaking, it's not that wrong that there's some accuracy there. We'll talk more about that later, at least in terms of certain permitology and other accounts. But also, and more importantly, if you look at the question of like what the ultra rich really want today, mm. you find an awful lot of primal father monster dads. Well, that's true. Right? Like I, in that, you sent me that Atlantic article. Yeah, about this. Yeah, this, that was really good. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. Like basically, you have a lot of you have a lot of very wealthy people whose whole thing is like, I'm just going to live forever. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cronus is time, by the way. Yeah. Cronus is father time, and he eats his children, and they're all, and the children are only able to. This is one of the earliest Greek myths, right? Pre pre exists Oedipus. Um, Cronus is father time. Uh, he, he kills his children because he's afraid that they're going to supplant him. So ultimately, they castrate him or they send him into the the world below. There are a variety of different stories here, right? But the idea of like the father who is so insistent on remaining in power forever that he literally consumes his own children, right? Sound and wants to control everything, wants to live forever, and all women and all objects will be his. Like basic primitive accumulation, human beings are objects. Sounds like a uh, like yeah, like a Greek myth or a, a comic book villain or something. But also, I don't know, I opened a couple magazines last week and it was all about this multi-billionaire whose whole thing is that he wants to reverse age himself so that he's 18 all the time. Oh, yeah. And thus he's taking blood transfusions from his son. From his son that, right? There was that horrible picture. Yep. Uh, yeah, talk about like some incestuous, like both of them shirtless wrapped around one another. Like his son. Oh man. Yeah. We or, could do an entire show on the semiotics of that very horrifying image. Exactly. Or think about like like Jeff Bezos and or Elon Musk's who who or Elon Musk in particular. Or Peter, is about this, what's his last name? Peter Thiel, Thiel, right? Yeah. But Elon Musk in particular is is like he literally has, has all these alleged plans to like have as many possible children as he can because sure. he wants the long termism stuff. Or hell, even look at like, and this is something people think you're making up, but it's entirely true. You look at like what Jeffrey Epstein's plans were for after his death, or rather after what he believed would only be a temporary death, namely because he was going to have both his brain and his penis frozen cryogenically so that he could then repopulate the human species, right? At that point, like, sure, the idea that at the beginning of the dawns of time, there were primordial primitive accumulation monster dads who didn't give a fuck about the survival even of their own children and just wanted to rape and own and dominate forever. That sounds kind of crazy, but also- But they walk among us. But they walk among us. Yes, they're some of the most powerful people on the planet. Uh, And you better believe as child mortality rates, you know, go in the direction that they're going, that they are, you know, if not literally killing children for adrenochrome, like as the old myth says, but they are definitely indifferent to the fate of those children, more broadly speaking. So there, which is to say that in that, as in the Oedipus thing, there is a kind of mythical truth, right? Or there's something that seems to speak to dynamics in the human condition that are, sure, we could call them vulgar Freudian, sure, we could call them gross, but they're, they do seem to be very real uh, and they do seem to be playing out. So yeah, without a f- further ado, shall we get into the Oedipus myth proper? So, like, look, here's the deal with Oedipus, right? What's Patrick, the deal what's with the Oedipus? Deal with Oedipus? Oedipus, what's the deal? <laughs> so, so, Oedipus, like, look. Um, Is that your Staten Island That was a little bit more. Accent? That was actually a little more Steinfeld, Steinfeld accent now that I think about it. But uh, neither, neither there, neither here nor there. Um, Oedipus, 
like, let's just say this. I'm going to give you, there are a bunch of different versions of the myth. And I think this is actually kind of important for us to be, be aware of because the different versions of the myth, which I'll summarize, point to certain recurrent themes. Okay. Um, and also, I should say, too, that as with a lot of the other myths that preoccupy Freud, including uh, most notably like Narcissus, uh, but some other ones, there are actually multiple versions that kind of speak to these dynamics, oftentimes involving family, loss, and trauma, et cetera. Okay. In any event. So yeah, or, or oh yeah, and the other big example that I'm thinking of here is uh, in Freud's amazing book on Moses. There oh, are yeah. many different versions of Moses. There yeah. are like literally three or four Moseses uh, and uh, what, and including one who was murdered and then another one who takes his name. So like the idea- That's of, another episode. Yes, it's another episode, but I want, I want us to point to how for Freud, the idea of- these myths being more than just a single story told in a single text. Yes, 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 yes. But That's ins- important. But instead being like a figure in a broader historical tradition that has multiple faces, but that clusters around certain themes mm-hmm. and that we keep turning to or also being drawn to is a recurrent theme, mm-hmm. right? And Oedipus is one of these. Right. And it's also important that that Freud, and I can say this because I've spent the last two days looking at like systematically tracking Oedipus through, uh, through Freud's corpus, is like he is very interested in the actual stories. Like Oedipus, Rex, um, and like Hamlet is another one of his preoccupations. They don't, they're not just shorthand for them. He's actually like very interested in the text themselves and um, not not quite in what I'd call like reception history, but let's say something a little bit more direct, like why people still continue to care about these texts and to feel them and to feel implicated by them. Yeah. Why do they still hit? Yeah. That, okay. That's a better way of saying yeah, it. Like or at least what, a pithier way of saying it. What's the it. traction? Yeah. What's the traction and what's the attraction? Or, yeah. So here, like, let me just, so right off the bat, right? There are actually a bunch of Oedipuses, even if you read Homer, right? So like, if, if, you, if you read the, if you read the Odyssey, um, you well, if you read the Iliad, there's a mention of a of a Theban king, king of Thebes, named Oedipus, who has a fancy funeral, presumably because he died in battle. Okay, so right there, uh, that's one Oedipus. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, I, uh, uh, sorry, one <laughs> two Oedipus. If you count, uh, if you read in the Odyssey, in the, in the Odyssey <laughs> I'm a little right, punchy today. You in, in book eleven of the Odyssey, there's an Oedipus who uh, unknowingly, unwittingly kills his father and marries his mother, who is called Epicasta in this version of it. Oh, she's not Eucosta. No, this is Epicasta. Epicasta. Epicaste. Epicaste. I, I, again, my Greek has gotten so bad. There are prob- it's shameful, really. Honestly, there is a Jesuit who probably wrapped my knuckles with a, a, a yardstick if he could. But um, Speaking of paternal uh, but only discipline. For, yes. Uh, in, in any event, moving along, in this version that you get in the Odyssey, uh, this Oedipus and Epicaste do not have time to have kids. Okay. However, the gods somehow uh, make uh, make known that Oedipus killed his father. So Epicaste kills herself. Mm-hmm. And um, Oedipus, however, continues to rule Thebes, being pursued by the Furies. Okay. Right. So, so no, you're already with these ideas of like the king, the empire. Yeah. The, something is wrong with the empire. Mm-hmm. There is a primal crime. Behind this great fortune or this great city is a crime. Yeah. Right? Okay. There's still some more Oedipuses. I'm going to give you these because these are also interesting. Okay, right? more Oedipuses. Lay it on us. Right. There is an Oedipus um, in an epic series called the Thebias, which is the uh, authorship is a little unknown. Mm-hmm. But in this, you have two other versions of Oedipus. <laughs> okay. Right? 
in one of these, uh, he's 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 already blind, okay. right? Or and it's, it's again, it's interesting. If you're a Greek audience member going to see a play, you might have multiple versions. Of it. You'd be like, oh, which which multiverse version of Oedipus is this, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. But in this one, in this lost text of Thebaius, um, Oedipus, who is probably blind, curses both of his sons. First, when one of his sons disobeys him by bringing him this is a terrible sin, wine served in a gold cup that clashes with the silver silverware on a table. Oh my God. Honestly, rude. Very rude. Again, wealthy. It's, it's a faux pas. It, it's like sure. Roman eating the, ordering the lobster on that meal at which Logan beats him the shit out over this, their childhood memory, right? Mm-hmm. So Oedipus curses him. Then there's another version of this where his sons serve him the wrong cut of meat. Oh, I know this one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't get, he doesn't get like, I don't know, like. Yeah. The, so he's sort of like Roman who never got the steak. Yeah, he, because Ken always got the, got the got the chicken. Yes, and then Oedipus, who is who is clearly a crusty old asshole at this point, prays that the two sons would quote quarrel over their patrimony and die at each other's hands, and then this becomes the story, which is again yeah. the, the the final scene, second like almost the final scene of Succession. Yes, and this, right. and then this becomes the Theban War in this story. Okay, all right. Okay, there there are seven against Thebes. There, there's a magnificent seven against Thebes. It doesn't matter. The point here, though, is that in all these cases. Um, this uh, patrimony, which is also like yeah. a kingdom. Yeah, I was going to say, can um, you just spell out patrimony? Because I feel like it's yes. a pretty loaded word. P-A-T-R-I. No, not literally. Oh, <laughs> I'm <M-O-N-Y>. sorry. <laughs> no, I don't mean, can you spell it out loud? Yes. I mean, I, I'll unpack it a little bit more in a minute, but for our purposes now, let's talk about it as like, it's the, it's the boon prize or the inheritance, the primary inheritance yeah. that travels down from the paternal line yes. and that is traditionally given to the eldest son mm-hmm. or to the most noble or otherwise uh, auspicious son, the, the son who is destined to replace the father as his successor. Just to take it outside of this context for a minute, um, just the idea of, of patrimony, even, you know, setting aside a uh, bracketing succession for a minute, something you see all over like Genesis, right? You see these, these pairs of brothers who are, who are jockeying um, to, to receive the patrimony. You see even like, you know, like uh, Jacob tricking uh, Esau out of the, the birthright and the blessing. Um, so anyway, the, the point is these, these are, you see these, these stories that, that what would you say, Patrick, they hit hard. They hit hard. <laughs> Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. They're about like, the inheritance, right? Yeah. Or like what's coming due. It's not what's just- What's due yeah. is a nice way of putting it to you, but because what's due is not always what's going to, what, what you're always going to get. Exactly, yeah. And and it's, it's, it's sort of like, what is, what's the seal of approval, so to speak, or uh, of the seal of succession, right? I mean, another way of thinking about it is like, is, is succession, in, in this, and just the ways that we're thinking about here, right? Is it just the order of this person, then this person, then this person, or is something transmitted in the succession? Right, right, right. right. And is and is what's transmitted just a fortune? Is it just the silver and gold plates? Or is it perhaps a title, right. a role? But maybe it's also a destiny or guilt, um, which is... Good yes. example from Succession at the in the last episode where they uh, where Shiv and Roman swim out to to that floating dock that that Ken is on and they say, uh, I think I think it's something like you get the bauble like it's it's haunted and cursed and nothing will ever go right but enjoy your bauble <laughs> like that's that's the patrimony of Succession. Congratulations, you have the phallus. Yeah, congratulations, you got it. <laughs> You're gonna suffer horribly. <laughs> 
here's here. So the two more versions of um, of Oedipus, uh, and and we're, we're skipping one by Euripides, in which uh, the king is blinded by the servants of Laius, because that's just again too small to even mention. But Aeschylus, notably, yeah. also has a bunch of versions of this. Uh, a play, actually, one called in Laius, which is the father of mm-hmm. Oedipus, right? Mm-hmm. And in this one, uh, Laius learns from the oracle of Delphi that in order to save his city of Thebes, he has to die without ever having any kids. Okay. However, um, he is a, a extremely horny guy. Uh, this is basically he's overcome by lust, uh, and uh, he has Oedipus, right? Mm-hmm. And um, immediately. It's like, well, actually, now I got to have this kid killed, but I don't want to directly kill this kid. So famously, I will have this kid exposed. It's unclear exactly how Oedipus survives, uh, but he does eventually grow up and while walking on a road, comes to a fork in the road and has an encounter with his father, with a dude on the road who is rude to him and doesn't make way. They fight and he kills him. Now I'm picturing like that whole confrontation is just like when you're trying to pass a tourist in Soho on the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) and that's what gave rise to this myth this Oedipus uh, this is Aeschylus' Oedipus probably kills the Sphinx and the Sphinx right is another dear friend uh, to Freud in like the Freudian imaginary world uh, uh, you know with wings and lion parts and head of a lady and she gives riddles and the famous riddle she gives what 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 creature depending on how you translate what creature crawl walks about on four legs in, 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 in the morning Two two legs at noon and three in the evening of the day. And and what's the answer? Humans. Yeah. H- humans. Except back then they said man. Yes, they said man. Uh, it, it was humans. <laughs> I mean, it could have... It, it's people. I think it was Andros. But 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 also, it could, I guess the answer could be like a fucked up horse or something. But but but, but the answer here, right? <laughs> and I, this is actually, I think it's, it's worth saying that this is an important myth for Freud too. Also, because it points to how... That's why you went to the horse, yeah. wasn't it? Because little Hans... A little bit of little Hans. Hans. Okay. But, but also more importantly, the... What's important for, 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 I think, for our purposes on this podcast and to think about the Sphinx and why the Sphinx is such a central riddle of the, uh, of, 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 for psychoanalysis, but also like kind of gets at the question of like, well, why, why was the Sphinx, why was this riddle defeating so many people? Why was the Sphinx eating so many people, right? It's that people like to think of themselves as being just the one thing, namely their most abled adult form, right? As opposed to containing within them, right? At least the normative injunction is to think of the person simply as this. Um, bipedal, functional, rational creature that exists at one point in time. Whereas, in fact, as you know, the Freudian it's like one of the perspective more broadly articulates, you are the child is contained within, right? Your where you are going, your older self is also the germ of that is in you too. And and Oedipus, for whatever reason, figures out this riddle, defeats the Sphinx, uh, becomes king of Thebes, and now in this uh, version has has two kids. Correctly, he finally he does have two kids with. His, with uh, his his mother and Elias's uh, ex-wife, who is named Yocasta. Uh, we don't know exactly how he finds out that Yocasta is his mother. The Tiresias, the, the blind seer, may be involved in this. In any event, he, Oedipus is very distraught. He blinds himself. Yocasta kills herself. And then Oedipus curses his two sons to go to war and, and to, to, to kill one another in a battle for Thebes, right? So, but, but the most famous of these, if you've seen a production... Of 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 Oedipus or or a film or a theater one or the and or the one that, that that Freud is certainly working with is that by Sophocles right, 
And Sophocles, there's some different versions of what happens in Antigone is a little bit different than what happens in the two major Sophocles Oedipus plays. Uh, the Oedipus plays that concern us are Oedipus the King, which in, in Latin is Oedipus Rex, right? And then the second one, which is Oedipus at Colonus, which takes place some years later. And in this story, which combines some elements of the other ones, but also puts them to new purposes, the King Laius gets an oracle from Apollo that he, he will be killed by his son. So what he does then is he orders a shepherd to take the son and abandon him. The shepherd, however, is um, kindly enough to save Oedipus and raise him. And at a certain point, however, Oedipus receives another warning from a different prophet, a different oracle. And this oracle tells him, Oedipus, you're going to kill your father and marry your mother. Now, Oedipus, who has grown up thinking that the shepherd is his father and that uh, the shepherd's wife, Merope, is his mother, is like, that's terrible. I can't do that. I've got to run away. And so he runs away, goes down a road, and there's a fork, and boom, who does he meet? It's this Lias fucker. Um, and he's probably <laughs> not on the right side of the... Yes. There's a, there is a road rage incident. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, near Dallas, he kills Laius. Right, he solves the riddle of the Sphinx and marries Yocasta. When the play opens, however, Thebes is being gripped by a plague. The city appears to have been cursed by the gods, and no one knows why. Another oracle reveals that the city has become spiritually polluted because somewhere in it, unpunished, is the killer of the previous king, mm -hmm. Laius. Oedipus then pronounces a curse on the killer and vows to personally bring the killer to justice. This investigation uh, terminates in his realizing that he himself is the killer, that he has put the curse on himself, and that he must inflict justice on himself. Yocasta hangs herself, and Oedipus pulls the pins out of her dress and blinds himself, and then is led away by a, a small slave child or someone else. The, the plague in, lifts from Thebes. In the other story, which is a little bit more interesting for Lacan than it is for Freud, but we're also going to talk about a little bit today, Oedipus at Colonus takes place some years later. Oedipus is um, blind. He's now being covered by Antigone. Uh, he arrives at the grove of the Eumenides near Athens. Um, and he basically gets involved in some more politics involving Thebes. But basically what the deal there is that he has to account for himself, make some prophecies for the future, um, and uh, curses his sons for their neglecting him, and then finally dies uh, and it, under sort of mysterious circumstances, it's a much more dialogue. It's a much more weird play, yeah, uh, and it's it all about well, it's all about these themes. And now I'll tell you what these themes are, just to kind of so we can track them. So we can track forward. them, right? Like what taken together, all these versions, right, and not just the Sophocles, kind of put together ideas of, and I'm going to list them as like pairs, right, as oppositions or sure. as tensions. This idea of a wish, right versus a prohibition, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This idea of an inheritance or a legacy, but also specifically the idea of an inheritance of guilt, but an inheritance of guilt for something that maybe you did or maybe you didn't do, or maybe you did, but you don't know you did it, or in any event, a guilt that exists in some sort of complicated recognition relationship to recognition. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Or a, misrecognition. Misrecognition. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it, it, sorry, this is like a favorite word of Lacan is, is méconnaissance, like a misrecognition. Exactly. And this is all very, I should say, this is all maps onto this, what we know about Greek drama, right? Where it's all about these reversals and yeah. reveals, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Other themes that are kind of important here are, are the way in which your individual origins map onto or are related to your, your end, your demise. And how we could even, maybe sometimes in this paradoxical way, the origins become clearer only retrospectively as we near the end of things, right? This temporality, right? Like that the destiny is revealed as you're going into it. The specific character of this destiny is what you would call tragic, right? And the line here from Freud is sort of helpful, right? The hero of a tragedy must suffer. To this day, that remains the essence of a tragedy. He had to bear the burden of what was known as tragic guilt. The basis of that guilt is not always easy to find. For in the light of our everyday life, it is often no guilt at all. With all that in mind then too, I want to give you one last sort of set of themes that are relevant here. In all these stories, whether it's Oedipus being in the one version, like, well, I don't want to, what he's being raised by the shepherd, he gets the, the oracle saying, you're going to kill your father. So he flees, but then he kills his actual father. Or in the Sophocles version, Oedipus promising to bring justice to the killer, no matter who it is, and then discovering that he is himself the killer. You have this way in which characters are given destinies or told what their destinies are, either by other figures or by themselves, and that sometimes that destiny is realized by their embracing it, but other times that destiny is realized precisely by their avoiding it. They get caught in it. And even more broadly then, and now I'll pivot back to you, Abby, is this idea of these destinies or these pathways that are kind of set out in Mm -hmm. front of us or ahead of us by social structures, by families, by religious belief, by oracles, by the crimes of others, whatever, that these, these are foundational destinies that we enter into only sort of dimly aware of, but that can chart our path through life and which we may wind up reenacting, repeating, transforming through sublimation, or in any event, later on, transforming them into myths, rituals, and taboos. So that's the story in its full broad arcs. And I will go back to you now. can like really dive into succession i feel like this is like we're like endlessly different we're like i promise we're going to talk about succession we are but there's just like there's a lot of there's a lot of oedipus and freud to get through first what do i want to say about this okay a couple of general comments and then let me just kind of like track oedipus through freud which is actually like a little bit more difficult than you would think so i kind of said this before in response to Dan's question, um, but let me reiterate it. For Freud, the Oedipus complex is a universal structure. Um, Everyone has to deal with it one way or another. Um, And the other thing I, again, I probably said it already, but I think it's worth reiterating is that the whole thing is structured in terms of desire. Um, Whether that is desire to kill, like to obliterate, the other 
um, whether it is desire for sex. Um, it's, it's organized around want. And want here takes a triangular structure. I think that's important. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that people are so interested in, like if, if this were just the story of Kendall Roy and Logan Roy, it wouldn't be nearly so interesting, right? There are so many other players in here and they are all in these triangular relationships with each other. And we keep seeing them like form and reform into these, into these like clusters. Um, and yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's not actually about Freud. I just got carried away. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up though also is not just thinking about Freud, but thinking about succession is because desire of course is what moves plot forward and it's what moves character forward. You know, what does everyone want? And, and in some ways, and you know, we're, we're talking next week to, to Christine Small, we'll talk a little, and who's, who's written about depressive realism. Um, there's a way in which like this show is a depressive realist show. Like in some sense, no one changes and no one gets what they want. Anyway, the Oedipus complex is, I think if you ask a, a random person on the street about Freud, they'll probably say something like id, ego, superego, and Oedipus. Like those are, it's... <laughs> I'm not going calling back to Patrick's top 10 psychoanalytic concepts, but it's up there, right? Um, so it's pretty striking that there is no one like systematic article or book where Freud is like, here it is. It's the Oedipus complex. Let me tell you what it is and why it matters. You actually have to kind of hunt for it in Freud's actual writings. This may or may not be because he is clearly working out his own family drama. Um, that's speculation. Here's not speculation. The first time that we see the the even a hint of the Oedipus of Oedipus at all, let's say let's I'm gonna hold off on the Oedipus complex that comes a little bit later. Oedipus at all um, is prefigured. In 1897, in what's called Draft N in the Fleece Papers, um, and Freud says, he's talking about death wishes, and he says, quote, it seems as though this death wish is directed in sons against their fathers and in daughters against their mother. Um, the next time we see it is again in 1897. This is what gets more frequently quoted as like the first appearance of Oedipus, but it's still unpublished. Um, and this is in a letter to Fleece. And here he's talking about Hamlet. Okay, so like Oedipus and Hamlet show up twinned a lot in Freud. Um, and he's saying... Um, about Hamlet, um, quote, how better could he justify himself than by the torment he suffers from the obscure memory that he himself had meditated the same deed against his father for passion for his mother. Okay, so those are 1897. And those, you can see, this just like one line each time. Um, but it's, I'm bringing it up because it's on Freud's mind clearly. And this is in that kind of early phase where, um, you know, he's thinking about hysteria. He hasn't yet written the interpretation of dreams or he's at, at best, he's like begun it. The first published appearance is also pretty fleeting and it is in the interpretation of dreams in 
1900. And uh, I think this is the only passage I'm going to read you today, which is probably an all-time record for me, is picking only one short passage. Um, This is it. In my experience, which is already extensive, the chief part in the mental lives of all children who later become psychoneurotics is played by their parents. Being in love with the one parent and hating the other are among the essential constituents of the stock of psychical impulses which is formed at that time and which is of such importance in determining the symptoms of the later neurosis. It is not my belief, however, that psychoneurotics differ sharply in this respect from other human beings who remain normal, that they are able, that is, to create something absolutely new and peculiar to themselves. It is far more probable and this is confirmed by occasional observations on normal children, that they're only distinguished by exhibiting on a magnified scale feelings of love and hatred to their parents, which occur less obviously and less intensely in the minds of most children. Okay, so you see, like, this is everywhere for Freud. It shows up less dramatically in folks who aren't showing up on on the couch, right? But it is already here something that that he's just like this is this is this is a human phenomenon. Okay. Um, immediately after this observation, Freud moves on to talk about Oedipus, and he recounts the story uh, that we heard from Patrick, uh, at least the the Sophocles version of it. Um, and he's like he he spends some time, and this is a question we could pose of succession as well, and saying like why does this resonate with us? Like, why why are we still thinking about this story? Um, And he says, because, quote, it is the fate of all of us to direct our first sexual impulse towards our mother and our first hatred and our first murderous wish against our father, close quote. After this, he goes right on into Hamlet, which with a nice little aside about Hamlet as hysteric, um, because while in Oedipus Rex, these desires are are laid bare, right? Like they're obvious, they're they're text. Um, In Hamlet, there's, at least the way that Freud is is reading it, they're unconscious motives. It might be worth helpful, it might be worth, it might be useful for us to to pause for a second and to and to to put a pin in, or I don't even know what, to to really focus in on that sentence about like our first sexual yeah, impulses. Yeah, yeah, please. Because it's like, and this is a common trap, and it's a trap also that, that rings, or that hits particularly unpleasant in the year twenty twenty three, almost probably as hard as it did back in the original Freudian era, in insofar as that talking about children and how children relate to the realm of sexuality or framing that as like childhood sexuality is oftentimes because largely of, 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 of moral panics, but also understandable anxieties taken as being the same as literally sexualizing children as in bringing them sexuality or saying that childhood sexuality is the same thing as adult sexuality. Right. right. That's not what he's saying at all. It's the first object choice in some ways. Like, I mean, it's to say that like the first libidinal object choice is the mother is uh no, it, it, it's, it's worth saying. I'll, I'll say it crudely because I think this is the the thing, right? When Freud is saying that that, that that the mother is the is the first sexual object choice of the child, or mm-hmm. that the mother begins the first sexual uh, experience, like it somehow initiates the child into this regime. Mm-hmm. This does not mean 
that like some two-year-old is like, okay, I'm going to take her out for three cocktails and then I've got a Barry White CD <laughs> and I've been reading the guide to getting it on and here's how we're going to... No, that's that's not... That is... Yeah. That's... I know, right, right. But like, but that's worth... I, I want that response because that is self-evidently absurd. Okay. Right? And so is it self-evidently absurd to read the sexual desire here as as the same as what an adult would have. In fact, if anything, sure. what is at stake here, mm-hmm. right, is the child's inchoate attempting to understand what is going on with adult sexuality, which it does have a curiosity for. Sure. And, to, you know, the question is like, well, why, what's, why are there times when mom and dad are together and I can't be there, yeah. right? Or what, what, why, can I, why can dad touch mom in ways that I can't, et cetera? But also, it's a way of getting at the fact that for the child who doesn't have access to things like, you know, a mature adult vision of what sexuality is, they don't also have an, uh, necessarily a vision of like what normal adult friendship bonding would be like either. Instead, yeah. what they have is a experience of profound dependence yeah. and primary direct attachment to yeah. this source of care, love, stimulus, and pleasure. Yeah. And that's the initial attachment. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, it's the mother is the pri- the first and primary love object right. is, is another way of, of, of putting that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't think that that is just like, I'm trying to make it more palatable. It's just like, that's, that's, that's the case. That's the nature of that, of that attachment. Yeah. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not putting that on you. I'm saying that that is a, uh, that's a, co- it's a common misunderstanding that, that Freud is basically saying Kids are, kids want to fuck their parents. That right, is not right. the correct. No, he's, yes. he's not saying that. Yeah. I mean, all, all love is in some ways libidinal energy for, for Freud. Um, but that's still not the same thing as, right. as saying that. Not unlike what we're going to talk about with the phallus later. It's just the language is caught up in like modern, modern meanings that can skew it. Well, it is and it isn't because, you know, in 1905, Freud is going to publish the three essays on the theory of sexuality um, and is going to, you know, tell everybody about infantile sexuality for sure. So, but, but it's not, you know, so, so I don't think you want to totally like desexualize this in some way, but like to the extent, if you're talking about, um, okay, in the edible period, I was going to get to this, the edible period is generally like ages three to five, um, like developmentally speaking. Um, but yeah, the the way that Patrick is talking about it, I think is is good. Like the mother, and I think, look for for Freud, the mother generally means the mother. In subsequent psychoanalytic traditions, the mother is like you could like for like somebody like Winnicott, um, it, the mother isn't necessarily even gendered. It's like that first source of love and care that anticipates. Um, and fulfills every need of the child. Okay, so like that's that's what we're talking about is like the primary love object, and this is important for like that sets the model for every subsequent love object, um, and from whom you're going to have to at some point detach or decathect if you're ever going to love anyone else the way that you first loved your mother. That's, yeah. Is that is that uh yeah yeah help Patrick? And I I think what what we can say here too just to also. Uh, you know, add, add a little bit more context to it. Is does this coexist with the fact that, and anyone who has kids in this age range will generally will attest this. 
kids say some wild shit sometimes, right? Occasionally, sometimes, like, why can't I go back inside mom, right? Or like, what I'm, I'm going to marry mom or I'm going to marry dad. Like, yeah. they kids do say this type of stuff, right. but they don't necessarily mean it in the same way we would mean it. Although, right? yeah. I mean, I actually yeah. thought this was one of the great strengths yeah. of the succession finale. Like, yeah. the, the the horrible ickiness of Alexander Skarsgård. What's his character's name? I just think of him as Matson. Alexander Skarsgård. Mats, Matson. Um, being like, why can I, why should I have the baby lady if I yeah. could get the one who put the baby in the baby? I'm, I'm yeah. misquoting. Um, but there is that sort of like, why have the phallic woman when you could have the phallus? Yeah. Um, and, but it's put in this like childish idiom and coming, having that sort of like talk, which, which seems like, because he's like, which seems like it should be coming from a toddler coming from an adult man is so deeply creepy, right? It's why that scene works so well. A stunted adult man who's doing all this weird shit, like sending blood to people, but also do we recall what his relationship to his father is? Uh, do we know? Yes. He mentions it. It's a trauma of his own. What's that? His father is dead. His father committed suicide and he discovered the body That's of right. his father. That's right. Right. So literally, we are we are dealing. When do we find that out? And did I did I repress that? Uh, it happens in the episode when they're in Norway on that amazing sort of like ski lift uh, chalet type situation. Sure. And uh, Roman and Kendall and and Shiv. Oh, are, are, of course, of course. Yeah, talk about how sad it is the loss, and then and Matson's like, well, yeah, you know. I, more fucked up just to see her to come in, like find your dad. Like he's like, I forget like if he committed suicide in a car or something like that or car. It was, it was something really grim mm. and you, and you're like, okay, here is this person who is, I want us, we'll talk about what edible victories are otherwise, but here's a yeah, person we'll who's, who's got a different role. His, his dad is definitely dead. He didn't kill his dad, right? He didn't stab him at the crossroad, but, uh, He's definitely existing on a very different relationship in terms of boundaries, bodies, sex, power, destiny, legacy, and the like. Okay, so let me just let me keep us on track here. You wanted to talk about this line um, about directing our first sexual impulse to the mother and our first hatred to the father. Do you also wish to gloss the the, the first hatred? Yeah, I think that's also helpful here. So, like again, like the, let's 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 think about this in terms of like the position of the little child, right, as being well being cared for by a, a maternal, a maternal figure, the maternal functional we'll call her the mother now here, but like let's stipulate that that is not necessarily that is a structural. Thing. Yeah. That's yeah. a structural position. This is the, the just, and yeah. if you, if Patrick is going to talk about the breast or if I are going to, again, not necessarily literal. Yes. This would be a bottle talking about a caregiver. This is the thing to say here too. Right. And just, just to like really straightforwardly stipulate this, like, on the one hand, yes, it is the case that like empirically speaking, things like, um, child mother incest are almost universally anthropologically documented as being taboo, right? Which is already saying it's interesting, right? People are like, well, then why, why, why taboos like this, right? That, that seems to point to some sort of structure. But beyond that, the way in which we can think most productively or in subsequent analytic thinkers can think most productively about the Oedipus complex is by thinking about its universality in terms of a structural predicament, mm-hmm. right? So to put this, uh, to, put, to be a little more explicit about this and a little more granular, your you qua child qua baby have the pleasure of total access or what you feel to be total access to the mother to the maternal function right she is your world or to put it another way and this i think also bears on some of the stuff we'll be talking about later yeah. right you have an organic connection to your mother because as barbara johnson put it your mother the mother is the first place you've ever been 
Mm. Like you literally came from her, you are dandling on her arm, maybe you're nursing, whatever the case is, you are a a, a unit of two, Mm -hmm. what you could call a dyad. A dyad, yeah. Yeah. What the dad is or what the the function here, the the person- The father function. The father functions is also structural. And and now we'll talk about what the forms of these structures, because these structures function in relation to one another is, right? The, the paternal function is two things. One, the father is necessary, but as everyone from Freud to the ancient Greek comedians to Shakespeare to, to, to common sense would note, whereas the mother is always obvious, the dad is not, mm. right? You don't come out of him, <laughs> right? Paternity, in fact, this becomes talk, a spoiler for the last episode of Succession, right? Paternity- I think we already uh, yeah. <laughs> blew past that. Yeah, paternity, the question of paternity and the the idea of oh, yeah. like, well, let's talk about that later. Like lineage yeah. is a is a bit more of an enigma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that fact almost underscores the key dynamic here in the Oedipus in, in the Oedipal uh Trying drama, which is a drama, right? It's a drama yeah. hurry child, not just a drama in the play, which is that on the one hand, the child has this tremendous direct, unmediated access to a mother, and the mother is not fungible. Right? Like it, it is just that mother, right? Maybe someone else can hold you for a little bit, but you want your mom. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, though, that dyadic relationship is going to be interrupted. It's going to be interrupted by necessity of the fact that mom needs to sleep or have a job. But also, at a certain point, there is going to be some other, some mm-hmm. human being, some person or some institution that has demands on the mother, that has a, that has a supervening prior, prioritarian claim over mom. Who's, who's not going to, who's not, it's not as crude as literally like put that thing in the bassinet. We need to have sex, right? Though that could be, you know, that I'm sure that's the thing that does happen quite frequently. I right? mean, that's, that's not totally not what it is yeah. in, in the Oedipus complex, which by the way, I'm going to get back to yeah. in just a minute. But it's also a, uh, a, a moment where what previously was a dyadic relationship of like near union with the mother becomes frustrated because of the interpretation the interpolation of a third party right who basically says no basically says no right you have to stop hanging off her breast not it's like my turn to be crude about it but like i get to spend some time with mom now she is not just yours she is also exists to me and so the child now has to rearrange themselves in terms of a triangular relationship and of course they would be frustrated at the person doing this. So that not negative, just frustrated, yeah. but full of rage. Full of rage. And, and I actually feel like, um, and I'm I'm really speculating right now, um, but this to me is one of the places where um, where Freud comes closest to like what Melanie Klein yes. will later think of as the sort of like you know like the psychotic rage of of the infant, um, like. I don't have the thing anymore. The thing being the mother or the breast because, because the father has taken her away. And so like we get this, this it's like a primordial rage, right? Like I, I want to stress the sort of like archaic nature of it. You, and I think that's there in Freud. I don't oh, think, yeah. I mean, I'm, I am a little bit reading Klein back into it, but I, I think it's there. If you've ever seen the, if you've ever seen the spectacle or been on the receiving end of a spectacle where like hell, Imagine like you're a mother and now you got to go back to work and the way the child maternity leave, if you were lucky enough to get it is over the way that child will wail and not want you to leave. You can feel it or another one 
imagine like, oh, you're going to spend the day with dad now. I'm, I, I've heard this happen. I've probably said it. And you know, lots of kids have said this. Like, I don't want to be with dad. Dad can die. I want you to stay, right? It's total, on the re- level of omnipotence of thought, mm-hmm. this kid is nothing but rage. Yeah. So again, much as the child does not have mature, fully logically fleshed out adult sexual impulses towards the mother, but still has this incredible yearning, the child now correlatively develops a intense um, negative feeling towards the the figure that's depriving it the mother, that's interrupting that access. And that is an intense murderous hatred, even if they don't like literally have a plan to kill them, right? Which which they don't. They don't. Right, because they're very, very Because they're a child. And and by the way, this is also like the first like foreshadowing of what will become the castration complex or the threat of castration is the idea, like the breast is being taken away. Like that's the earliest sort of whisper or prefiguring of of the take the taking away of 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 the thing. Okay, I'm just gonna leave it at that at the thing. Okay, I'm going back to going back to the text here. Where I left off a little while ago was in the interpretation of dreams. So that's 1900. It's another 10 years before the actual term Oedipus complex appears in Freud in publication. Um, it's in 1910, it's an essay called A Special Choice of Object Made by Men, which is quite a title. And again, um, it's pretty brief. Um, and then much later, 1923 and 1924, respectively, Freud picks this thread back up again in two essays. One of them is called Infantile Genital Organization, and the second one is called Dissolution of the Oedipus Complex. The first of these is notable for many reasons, but for our purposes today, what I want to point out is that this is a moment where Freud, um, and he's talking about stages of, of development, um, and he's talking specifically specifically about the primacy of the genitals at a certain stage of development. He's like, let me correct myself. It's not actually like the genitals. It's the phallus. Um, and so this is what we're going to come to call the phallic stage or which coincides with the Oedipal period, um, which I think I said before is usually around ages three through five. And it's followed by what Freud calls the latency period, um, which is what precedes puberty. Um, and two very quick lines from this moment, this essay where he's describing the phallic stage. He says, one, maleness exists, but not femaleness at this stage. Okay, you get that? Maleness exists, but not femaleness. Um, And then he glosses it by saying, this is a quote again, the antithesis here is between having a male genital and being castrated. But there's no, close quote, there's no sense of the identification yet of castration with femininity. Okay, that's just like maleness or like not maleness. Um, That's, so that's what's going on here. There's this, it's like the phallus or nothing. In the second essay, The Dissolution of the Oedipus Complex, which spoiler doesn't actually completely like <laughs> dissolve so as to be like resolved. Um, it's the, this is where Freud contemplates like what happens to it. Um, not that it's surmounted, 
exactly as we can certainly see from succession, but rather that it ceases to dominate psychic life. Um, And this is where, again, we're getting at castration. Um, And this is where Freud tells us that what brings an end to that phallic stage that he was theorizing in the previous essay is the threat of castration. So that was hinted at before in the withdrawal of the breast, right? In an earlier stage of development for the child. But here, um, and this is one of those moments where like Freud gives like what, what seems like it has to be like an empirical thing. And you're like, but how can this happen to everyone? Whatever. We're just going with the account for a minute. We're not thinking about its veracity or anything like that. But he's saying... That here, um, what was hinted at in the withdrawal of the breast is brought home specifically by the sight of female genitals. This is Freud's language, female genitals. Um, And that this is what brings home to the little boy that castration is real and possible because he sees the possibility of like the nothingness um, of not having a penis. So the threatening castrating father is interjected as the superego. The ego turns away from the Oedipus complex. This, this ushers in the latency period. Okay. This is also where Freud brings up an issue that listeners may already be wondering about, which is that Freud has been talking this whole time about little boys, right? I think, I mean, I didn't, I didn't stress that, but it is true. It's clear. And he's like, by the way, I have been, I've been talking about little boys. How does this actually apply to little girls? Um, and I think this is, this is another one of these. It's we're going to really wonder about that in the context of, of succession. And I will say that as with like basically anything that has to do with female sexuality, Freud starts to be on much less sure footing here. And he even like, he starts to like almost like stammer in in the text. He's like, things become like our material, but it becomes like, for some reason, it becomes like more obscure. I, I, I can't imagine why. Um, and he writes about this extensively elsewhere, okay? So including a year later in an essay that we will talk about on another day when we talk about Freud's writing on female sexuality, which is called Some Psychical Consequences of the Anatomical Distinction Between the Sexes. Remember that if you're interested in this topic, we will get back to it. The short version here is that the, is the difference in the threat of castration, okay? So for the little boy, it is a threat. And for her, it's a fait accompli, right? Um, and so she moves, Freud says slips is the word that, that shows up here. Um, and again, you're going to want to think uh, about how this does and does not map onto succession, in particular season four. She slips from the desire for the penis to the desire for a baby. Okay, that's going to be the substitute for the penis that she doesn't have. I'd like to stress here that uh, we are not actually endorsing this view. This is just me walking through some of these some of these texts. And I want to say also that this is just scratched the very, very surface. There is so much ink that has been spilled on the Oedipus complex in analytic writing. Um, like almost every other major analytic figure post-Freud has their own version of it. People disagree on it. Um, the difficulties of applying it to women is one that has in particular gotten just like there's so much on it. Um, so I, I can't even begin to really like pull that together. 
Yeah, and I think it's worth saying here too. At that point, for example, that that there that there are plenty of self-identified feminist psychoanalysts and and and, and critically oriented psychoanalysts of a variety of of persuasions and and, and folky who will still use castration. Oh, yeah. in these dynamics, but the the move there is not to literalize uh, castration. Or, or sometimes they'll think about castration and these questions of like penis lack or penis envy as um, offering accounts as precisely showcasing the limits of Freud's perspective, but also the logic of uh, of how boys and girls in, in in that phrase are taught to relate to their own bodies yeah. through a through a matrix of of social misogyny. Yeah, right. And I- it, it's worth saying too at this point also just to. To, to, again, because this all sounds very weird, right? And it's it is weird for many reasons, and I think we're going to wind up spending several other episodes and returning over the course of our time together to, to to unpack this in many ways. And and right now we're doing it just to get to succession. But but it's worth saying here that, that a lot of this stuff is it's both it's it's weird in this uncanny way, in the sense that on the one hand it seems very bizarre and horrifying, right? And there's a whole lot of contingency in it, right? Mm-hmm. Namely the contingency of like Freud is writing from the perspective of the little boy. He is. Yeah. He is. Absolutely. He is. Who, 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 and not just a little boy who contingently happens to have a penis, but who looks at a, a naked, a naked girl or looks down at himself and thinks that, Oh, she must be missing something rather than my God, what is this horrible, like appendage appendage? Like, is this a cancerous growth? What the fuck is happening? Like we can get, get this goddamn tube off of me. Right. That's not, <laughs> That's not in the matrix there. That's and that's where you might point to like there's certain attitudes towards yeah. you know social stuff that's already shaping that. Yeah. Another thing that we I think we could say here too though is and this is also again this is not ordinary unhappiness doing advocacy or anything but simply being descriptive. Yeah. So on the one hand like yes it it it's it, it's ludicrous or it would be silly to to take to to to, to take castration too literal though however again this is again one of these things it's unca- i'm using the phrase uncanny here because it, it points to something that is that hits the real or that's present in the real right and and that would be that first like one let's just let's just point out that over the long course of human history but even over the course of what you could call modern european western history mm-hmm. there is a tradition of castrating people Right, whether it be the production of castrati, but also for punishment and also for sexual torture and for regulating slaves and other such things, right? That this is a thing that people have done. Sure. Two, it's worth noting also that castration, and again, note this term is it's like what specifically is being cut off. It's a little bit ambiguous, right? It could be is, is it the testicles, is it the rest of it, whatever, right? But um, two, there is a surprising occurrence of. Well, if you spend time with kids, they will sometimes worry about this type of stuff. Oh, my penis is going to fall off, right? Or also here, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give this a little more personal, but like, uh, I've always been, I've always been like of the opinion that yes, this is totally ludicrous. This is very, very ludicrous. And then at some point, I came across some Polish nursery rhymes that were sung to me, uh-huh. right? And yeah, believe me, there are cultures where they will, you know, where kids are sung songs, little boys are sung songs about how well, you know, if you take that out in the wrong, out, and what's not supposed to be there, there's a big bird in the sky, and it's going to come and eat it. Right. And clearly this is how you get kids not to do it. And that's how we get big bird. Right. <laughs> well, it's also how you get neurotic children. But, but here, you hear me here or, or you read some of these grim stories. You go to the Baba Yaga stories. Sure, Castration sure. is a recurrent thing. Absolutely. It's also the case, for example, that what would we, that, uh, 
even as we condemn certain, rightly certain types of cultural practices as uh, horrifying genital mutilation, it is also the case that uh, as a standard normalized medical procedure or a uh, time-honored religious practice, uh, penises are surgically altered, bits are cut off in you know, what we call circumcision. So this is a thing that actually does happen on some level, and children perhaps may understand that as a loss of something, right? So, which is to say that insofar as we're dealing with embodied metaphors and um, metaphors about the body, these run deep and the weirdness is very real. But the stuff that I think is most interesting and that I know Abby is going to turn us to now is to, again, thinking about these things as we did with the mother as a function or the father as a function, to think about castration as a function or as a... um, as a situation so, yeah. in some way, or a position. Let's say a position. As a relational position. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. You can't be, yeah, you can't be castrated without there being somebody that's phallic. Just so despite like we're doing a ton of hedging, right? Yeah. And and I, I think we're doing it on purpose. Yeah. Um, I personally um don't know how much of this part of Freud's corpus can be like re- rehabilitated yeah. in a certain way. But um I do find like even though I'm not like I'm not particularly interested in the ca- in like the concept of penis envy, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I, I I quite prefer Patrick's like, and I'm not even really interested in like the the like reversals of it, like womb envy or whatever. Like I don't for a whole host of reasons, including like the biological essentialism of of all of it, that I don't I don't want to I don't want to be on that on that train. I do think that some of the language we get from this is profoundly useful. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking um, of um, Jane Gallup, who is, who I think we've cited before on, on the podcast, on the podcast for her book, reading Lacan. Um, she's got this essay. Like if you're ever, if you're ever sort of like, why does this, why would we think about using the idea of castration? Um, she's this uh, short essay in a book called anecdotal theory um, and it's called Castration and the Unemployed PhD. Um, and she is explaining how she's like, I mean, this is in a different, this is in a different time. Okay. Um, although the book comes out in 2002, this is still the pre-2008 um, job market. And she explains early on that like there was a year where like she didn't get a job, but then like she gets a job and she's like happily employed in academia forever. Um, but she has this scene where she's naked in a locker room and there is a grad student who is on the job market who is also naked in the same locker room. And the grad student is expressing this, this stuff about like, like her fears. Um, I don't have a job. And Jane Gallup is like, oh yeah, well, let me tell you about like my year of being, being in that position. Um, And she's like, well, I expressed her, she thought I was, she's like, Jane Gallup is like, she, the grad student, like thought that I was phallic and she was castrated. Uh, and then somehow learning that I had also inhabited the position of castration allowed her to feel less shame about inhabiting that position herself. And so there's one line that I pulled out from this also that I think is really nice. And this is, by the way, from a written, from really within a Lacanian tradition. But she's, she glosses castration by saying, quote, it refers to a subject finding himself inscribed in a symbolic order he does not control. 
Okay. Like that's a really nice way of talking, for instance, about precarity. And that's like why I, I quite like, I don't think it's like, an, you know, it's, it's not like the most profound essay, but what it does is it just kind of draws out this seemingly esoteric or like useless piece of jargon and makes you see how it actually appears in these sort of workaday, everyday ways. The phallus is not the literal penis. Right. Right? The phallus is a signifier at least or is 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 stands in for presence and stands in for power or it stands in for all these things that basically uh are presented as being real and there but that are also underwritten by the anxiety of hey it could be taken away. There's one like tiny caveat which is like when I was ta- just talking about about Freud when he's talking about the phallus he actually does mean the penis. Yeah. In subsequent traditions there's a very and, and patrick i think is thinking about lacan here yeah. and the idea of like having the phallus yeah um, twitter blue check marks and elon musk suddenly yeah, taking them away. Exactly. yeah 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 exactly. okay that's that's a beautiful uh yeah patrick are you feeling symbolically castrated by having your twitter blue check mark taken away i'm i'm feeling like my my financial bottom line is taking a ruinous hit but that's another matter okay um, i can t- we, we don't have to no it's that. fine no but that's true it's it's uh that's that's uh that that talk about castration but 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 uh, on another point though like but but like do like give another here's some other examples right like this one came up earlier in the in the in the guns thing right but like what this means structurally speaking is that if you have something called castration anxiety you are not literally afraid that your penis is going to be physically taken from you. In fact, you may not even have a penis to begin with, or if you do have a penis, it can be perfectly safe, right? <laughs> Thus, you could examine, and I'm, I'm an old friend of the show, a friend of the show, Alex Colston, has used this example before, where it's like, it's hard to imagine a group of men or a group of people who are more obviously being gripped by castration anxiety than a whole bunch of guys in the back of a pickup from which they've hung truck nuts, waving a bunch of assault rifles in the air, wearing t-shirts that say big dick energy from my cold dead hands, <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, you're never going to take my gun, you bitch. Right? Clearly these people not only have the phallus, they gave their truck a plastic phallus and they're driving around with multi-thousand dollar phalluses that can kill you. But all that phallic like doubling down doesn't undo the anxiety over castration. And if, in fact, if anything, it underscores how the rule of the phallus, like the identity of the father, right, like the position of paternal authority, is a structurally contingent thing that we have anxieties towards. for a second and say like what could all what what can all this do for us now right and 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 make clear about this the question of succession right clearly the story of succession is one that takes off where all four of logan's kids are adults so we don't see them in the edible stage right we don't have we have flashbacks uh in that kind of awesome opening sequence that changes a little bit in each season uh, in which they all seem to be very unhappy and separated and silted, and dad just sort of looms, only visible from behind. Um, and of course, we have stories that they banter about and use to wound one another about times they acted out or were punished or betrayed one another. But in any event, what we are given 
is the story of these uh, the three primary children, plus Connor, the sort of uh, other fail son from a previous marriage, as they attempt to, let's call it, succeed their father, but also chart their own identities in relation to the template given them by their father. And the one thing I will say before we can game out what all the different characters do and how they react to one another is that one way of thinking about an Oedipal dilemma or the the problem of what, how an adult or would relate to Oedipal dynamics mm-hmm. would be a question of, do I follow in the footsteps or like the destiny prophesied right, right. for me or in the, the inheritance given to me by my the patrimony. Father, my patrimony. Yeah, mm-hmm. do I inhabit that? Mm-hmm. Do I inhabit that totally? Do I become like the old man? Right. Right? This maybe we could say and Kendall. replace him and replace him. Yeah, mm-hmm. like Kendall. Maybe I want to be him. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to be dad. I want to spend a, spe- a season trying to kill him. Yes, mm-hmm. trying to kill him to replace him. Yeah. Right? Um. He tried to dad it. Try to dad it. Or perhaps you might want to do something where you would be like, oh, I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm. I refuse to be controlled by dad. That's why I'm going to do in my life every single thing that will be the opposite of what dad wanted. Like, for instance, I'm going to go to work for a thinly veiled. Uh, <laughs> Bernie Sanders stand in. I'm gonna do. I, I, I'm so like against. Should. I'm so against letting my dad control me, and I so don't want his approval, and I so don't want to do anything he's ever done. Mm-hmm. That I'm gonna become a big deal and take over a liberal news media organization, back a liberal candidate for president, and um, I'll do that, and in no way be looking for his love by doing it because I don't need it. Clearly, these okay. are both kind of trapped. Okay, that. so yeah. like, I to, to me, it seems like both. Kendall and Shiv are obviously inhabiting these Oedipal double binds in a way that's like quite legible. Roman, I think, is a little more complicated. Yeah. What do you think? Roman is a perverse, tragic case. Yes. Right? And, 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 and I think Roman seems to be the closest to... Roman seems to be the closest in terms of the his proximity to the damage of uh, Kendall Quad rather uh, to, to Logan qua like primitive or father, like yeah. primitive accumulation monster dad. Yeah. The whole like, um, apart from the fact that he is, you know, he's actually perverse, right? He, he doesn't, well, he's, 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 I uh, mean, yeah. Can you, can you just sp- say what you mean by perverse here? Cause I, I feel like that's, a, that often has like a yeah. pejorative connotation, but you mean it in like a particular psychoanalytic yeah. way. I, and also, in the, and, and also, I mean, like, look, they, they, the, the writers on that show have, have it, have their cake and eat it they too. Do. Right. So, so like he, he's the one who like, you know, is like jerking off against a window uh, in his skyscraper. He's licking the cheese. He has the weird relationship with, with Peter's special cheese. Peter's special cheese. <laughs> he has a weird relationship with his physical trainer. He's asexual or is like sexually damaged in some way, right? Um, I'm not saying those things are simultaneous, but he's known as a CEO who doesn't fuck, right? Yeah. Um, For has, him, it, it manifests yeah. as damage. Yes. Yeah. He has this relationship with, with that he's not phallic. Yeah. With right. Jerry, who is who is old enough to be his mother. Oh well, he's the one who is most clearly looking for an edible victory. Yes. In that way. Yes. Which then again, here's the méconnaissance, the misrecognition, literally misfires the dick pic from Jerry to the dad. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and I wish that we use the term medical victory a while. It's we probably should just define it. The edible victory is when you, and this is also where the rubber hits the road, and you realize, okay, yeah, maybe there is some truth to this edible structure thing. Generally speaking, when someone, uh, I don't know, 
when dad dies and the kid now go gets now sleeps in mom's bed for the next 10 years because she's just so sad, <laughs> that kid is probably going to have some issues. Yeah, you don't want to have an edible victory. You don't want to have an edible victory. Or uh, I'll give another example of it. Imagine, I don't know, one of these kids, right, who is, um, I don't know, this is, I have to, these things actually do kind of happen. So I have to kind of keep generate the story on the fly a little more delicately. Imagine the kid who, you know, um, mom is going to work, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to leave you with dad. I'm going to leave you with dad. And the kid's like, no, don't go. I, I, I want to I want to be with free with you forever. Dad, I want you just to die. I just want you to go die. I want you to die. And dad's like, okay, kiddo, I'm going to put you in this, this car seat. We're going to go to Wally World. It's going to be great. <laughs> he gets out of the car to go into the driver's side and then boom, gets hit by a dump truck, right? Uh, dad's dead. Kid in the omnipotence of thought thinks he's just killed dad. Right. That that kid is that kid is going to have a certain type of edible victory, but that's again you don't you, you, don't, you don't want to throw want a parade that. for that you don't want that, <laughs> right? Um, so, I think in other words, like all this stuff about omnipotence of thought kind of tracks out here. Mm-hmm. Can consider too. This is the last thing I'll say because I, I want to hear what you guys have to say. But like the ambivalence of adults who have these infantile relationships with their father, right? They hate him. They want to succeed him. But also, and this is a, a thing that Freud notes in his primal father myth stuff, and we'll do totem taboo later because I want to talk more about Billion on some other episode. Yeah. But like what, one thing Freud notes about like in the primal father myth where basically there's this prim- primitive accumulation monster or sex dad who wants to kill his kids. The kids get together and they kill him. But then they realize that they missed him because they loved him and because he's all they had. He's who taught them how to love. Mm-hmm. And so they're left with a problem of how do we be who we are in relation to one another mm-hmm. when the only person who ever told us what we should be and who gave us the image of what we wanted to be was this terrible person? And there could only be one of them. So we all have to agree that we're not going to be the same way and hold checks and balances on it because mm-hmm. all of us simultaneously want to be him and to replace him. And now in the Freudian narrative, well, and this is the narrative he tells about, about, among other things, Christianity. Everybody agrees that, well, okay, we're not going to kill the primal father. We're not going to do literal cannibalism anymore. Instead, we're going to erect a whole series of guilty taboos and we're going to do a virtual cannibal meal where we eat this like weird bread and some sort of like high, high very sugary wine, right? Like that's, in other words- Meal fit for a king. A meal fit, <laughs> meal fit for a king, meal fit for a king. Yeah, so like they, in other words, the loss of the monster dad father is also not a victory. No. Right? Because, and we yeah. see that so much in, in season four, right? Like they, they all spin out in their own way. It was a relief for me as a viewer for Brian Cox to like finally be off the screen. <laughs> but I, but for, for uh, uh, not because he's not fantastic, but just because it's so painful. Um, but they all they lose not only like what small shreds of equilibrium they each had, um, but they're so fundamentally off balance. It's, I mean, Roman's popping pills by the end of it, right? Um, Kendall is completely, I mean, like, like, look, let's, 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 let's say this because this is the point where it's like, oh, the Oedipal stuff was almost totally obvious, right? Kendall is so, con- I mean, apart from, you know, having like whatever mood disorder and being all coke-fueled and t- rapidly cycling between like uh, total what, like grandiose mania and suicidal like uh, depression or just like totally like disconnect from the world uh, stuff. I mean, in that, by the final episode, Kendall has become 
a person who wants to assume his father's destiny, right? To vindicate the, his father, to, to, vin, to vindicate his father, become his father, achieve the inheritance, own the patrimony. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when, when Shiv confronts him with the fact that he's responsible for death, yeah. right? That he killed that, uh, that caterer, mm-hmm. literally denies that it ever happened. Yeah. Like, like foreclosure. Like he is, he now has taught himself to believe that that's not true. Mm-hmm. And which is horrifying. And, and Shiv, who, who, who kind of remarkably does. What is, I mean, it's a callback to the, like the, the no real person involved from, uh, yes. was it yep. season two or three? And Shiv kind of remarkably is like, I mean, to the extent which she has more, uh, some degree of a moral center more, right? She's, she's or just is some degree of like a reality principle. Yeah. Seems to be like, oh, it, well, it's interesting. She's like, both you can't do this job, but also seems to, to sense that he is, he's like ruthlessly embodied what, he, he's some sort of like further intensification of the indifference and, and, and brutishness of, 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 of Logan Roy, but without, but with a fragility that he doesn't have somehow, such that he takes this defense mechanism where he, says, he insists that he actually wasn't responsible for this death. He made it up. And then in response to that, right, when Roman is like, well, actually, no, your kids aren't your aren't really your kids because Shiv's got the bloodline going, right? Yeah. And, and we could we maybe should talk to about how Shiv like desperately wants to give her father the grandson, and is so sad that he leaves, and then she gets mm-hmm. to leave with Tom, and so, so she kind of in that yeah. in that very in that yeah. strange way where, yeah. of course, in some ways, Shiv is like the greatest loser of all of them because you know this. I, I think the show becomes very clear about like the misogyny of the world that it's in 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 season four to the extent that you know Shiv even like that's part of her eulogy at the funeral yeah, yeah there's there is this way where if, if we go back to to the Freudian text um Shiv is the bloodline and she although she loses the phallus right she's not going to be CEO she's been played like in the in the phrase that gets used whenever someone loses the phallus by the way is you fucked it yeah like that's the <laughs> you fucked it you like, and then so they're usually someone's like, but it's cool, like <laughs> whatever. But like that's that's the phrase for like you you lost the phallus. But in some way, Shiv regains it. Um, in again, this classical Freudian way, um, not in a way that I um, am endorsing as like a good <laughs> use of or proximity to power. Not that that's those terms were even really in play in Succession, right? Good and proximity to power, but. She that last or second to last or whatever it is seen with her and Tom in the black SUV. Mm. Um, Tom has like it's Kendall is there's a coronation right mm. by by the siblings, and then he's dethroned, and then Tom actually ascends, and then she becomes um, the one who is. Uh, you know, she places her hand in Tom's, um, and that is that is the closest way I think for for her to. I don't know. Instead of having the fellow, she has a baby. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so on the nose yeah. because it's also clearly not what Shiv wants. Shiv yeah. want like Shiv wants to be like. I, I guess there's there's. Can I ask you? Can I put you on yeah, the spot yeah, here for a second? Yeah. There's there's a phrase that I the phallic mother Yes, that I would say that yeah. that is in some ways what Shiv wants to be. And yeah. that is a position that is foreclosed here. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Do, do you mind uh, yeah. just give me a little and, gloss and, on and, it? And the phallic mother is, you know, again, like we're talking, we're using terms that are used to describe a misogynistic sort of thing, but like the phallic mother is the mother. Yes. The, we're being descriptive, not yeah. prescriptive. The, the phallic mother, right. Is, is the mother who, who, who somehow, despite the odds retains the phallus, right. Think you're of like in classic examples. Like, look, that's like the, 
on the right, Margaret Thatcher, right? She's she's the one who could have it all, right? Yeah. And, and she have wanted to be that. Like she'll be like, yeah, I'll be the CEO who like has the baby, and then I'll be like, see, ya. I'll be emailing mm-hmm. from my. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what the line is exactly. But, uh, yeah. But she, and and I will say that phallic mothers are part of the whole like that's those are who those castration anxiety like um fantasies are about. Yeah, those yeah. guys with all the guns are. You know, there's a reason why it's always Nancy Pelosi or Diane Feinstein, right? That yeah, that are going to take those things away. Right. Yeah, but Shiv wants to be the phallic mother, and there is that that position does not exist no. in this universe. No. And so she has to. And so what she does is she gives it up, and she gives it up and has a child. But what's interesting to me too, and I think this is something I'm thinking about here, right? Is that she also her decision to and, and like look, let's let's also stipulate all these people are horrible people whose jobs should not exist sure, sure, and who should be expropriated at the very least. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we kind of, yes. I guess maybe we didn't explicitly stipulate it, but so stipulated. Yeah. Let's, let's so stipulate this, right? Right. There'll be other podcasts. you be like, put all these people against a wall. Yeah. They like, deserve the guillotine. Bring yeah, it back. Yeah. But, but, but that's not do the that. show that we're talking that's not, about. Yeah, yeah, no. Right. Yeah. But we're talking about this sort of thing. And we're talking, I mean, we're talking within also the logics of like identification, yeah. right? Like that, that yeah. is the register in which the show yeah. has been received. None of us are immune from yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so, so to that point though, the, 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 what strikes me as being really remarkable, right, is, is that when she makes this decision where she basically has a choice either to vote for, um, uh, Madsen are kind of like Oedipal victory guy who is sleek and, and scandy and clearly predatory in a whole set of ways yeah. that are, that are novel. She has to choose between that and Kendall. And when Kendall, and I think this is a sequence that's so revealing. It happens so fast, right? In that room where they were, right? Yeah, we got to talk about that 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 scene. Yeah. Where, yeah. where, where Kendall- After the, let's just kind of yeah. set, set the scene up. Um, it's a it's a reprise of the the board meeting from what what season is that? Season two or yeah. I don't know, maybe season one. I don't season know. one. Season one. Thank you, Dave. You're good. <laughs> our, our memory of succession here. Um so it's a reprise of the thing. And, you know, of course, um, Kendall fucks it, right? He doesn't have the votes. And now a few seasons later, it's we're back there, um, except this time it's not Roman who backs out, although he does pause for a remarkably long time. It's Shiv, right? And so Shiv, Shiv walks out and they're all in the, and they're all in the conference room. And, and Kendall starts saying basically that this is his birthright. Yeah. Right. That, that Logan, that's why I keep saying patrimony is yeah. that's because that's setting up yeah. to be like, I'm the eldest boy. I'm the, I'm the eldest boy. He, and he told me at seven that I was going to be, there was going to be me. Mm-hmm. And of course, like, well, you know, like, and they, 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 that was fucked up, but whatever. He told me it was going to be me. It was going to be me. And she, at some point she was like, but you killed the guy. He's like, no, I didn't. Yeah. Right. And, and, and she was like, actually says that's despicable. So like, she clearly like, that's a bridge too far. I don't think she says that. But. She's, I think she says disgusting or something. She says something where clearly this is. She says, "I love you, but I can't stomach you." There's the, there's like, something, that yeah. Thing. Her face says it enough for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and, but what this was precipitated, and you know, yeah. everybody has has pointed this out, but it's important. Like where where Shiv starts to change her mind is when she sees her brother in her father's chair, and then she put, he puts his feet up, and she's yeah. just like, uh, "I I cannot." The bit the bit then is I like, can't let him have it also. Yeah, that's so that's, the it yeah. is very important in this whole thing. Like you're when we get to your bullshit, are you it? Do you want it? Yeah. Like all of those things like you can really just swap in the phrase like the phallus. Yeah. But what 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 for me is like the moment where it's like okay, this is where Kendall has been going the whole time because part of me is like, "Oh, Kendall is just going to he's going to OD on coke, right?" Or like he's going to 
he's going to have, he will eventually cross, he will do something so ludicrous that he, even his amount of money will not prevent him from, from either dying or being canceled or something. Right. Yeah. Which so is ludicrously capacious. Yes, you so, might say. Yeah. It, it, but it's the scene where he, he denies that he committed the murder, but that he committed, he was involved in vehicular manslaughter. And then uh, Roman and Shiv laugh in his face. Roman says the thing about how, well, she's actually the bloodline because your kids are adopted and artificially inseminated by someone else. Right. So again, you are Which, not huge reveal. Huge reveal, yes, and, and also like Kendall a, is castrated. Kendall is Kendall is in this mode castrated. Kendall, Kendall has been castrated all this whole time. Yes, yes, and Kendall has also been like it explains his desperation, right? right? Like it's 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 like what do I have for my father, right? If I can't carry on the line, I have the name, but I don't have the company. Yeah, and all I've wanted to do is be him, and my name might even be crossed out. Right, my name might even be crossed out, and then. Or underlined. Who can say? So, so, so here we have this man who has killed a person and now denies that he even did it, that a murder ever happened. He attacks the weakest of the siblings, right? The smallest of the siblings. He calls him a cuck. He calls him a cuck. Much of this is very... No, no by the way, also like the way, the way Logan would sexually dominate yeah. uh, um, Roman a lot too around that time in, 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 on Lake Lagano or wherever it was. Uh, yeah. where, where, are you... Are, Son, are you scared of pussy? Right, like yep. that kind of like yep. real, like in your face. Like, check mm -hmm. out again, primitive, uh, primitive accumulation monster sex dad. Right, yeah. like he shows her caring. Like I'm tapping that. What's wrong with you? Right, he he, in, he physically attacks Roman, which no one does anything about. Right, literally, but what he does to Roman after denying that he killed someone is he goes for his eyes. You're talking about Ken now, Ken, not yeah. about Logan. No, yeah. I'm talking about Ken. Yeah, in this, we're still we're back in this. Yeah, scene. and it, it, he literally. For a moment, it seems like he is like his like Oedipal victory, if you want to call it that, is that he's going to become a, he's an Oedipus who wants to who wants to inherit his father's thing, but also like he's a person who denies having been involved in a death, and instead of owning that or punishing himself, instead of blinding himself, instead of trying blinding himself literally tries to blind his brother. Yeah, he tries to like poke his eyes out. It's wild. It's I had to watch it twice to be like, is that really like... And it is a, it's a marvel that it actually didn't feel too on the nose. No. Um, I mean, partly because like his, his eye is already bleeding. We've already had that scene where he's both cradling... Ken is cradling Roman. Um, While well, literally reopening his old wounds. He's opening old wounds, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, but 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 both things are true. Is yeah. that's that's the like remarkableness of that scene is that uh, he is giving him genuine comfort, but he is also undoing his stitches. <laughs> um, he's making he's making old wounds. Uh, he's reactivating. Well, they're pretty new wounds, but uh, yeah. And so what we're left with in the end, right, with the three of them, is is we're left with like. Kendall has taken the path of like, he's become all the worst aspects of his father, but none of like, with, with much less efficacy. Well, and much less potency. Much less potency. Yeah, he's like just the, he, he can't even dominate his weakling brother, right? He can't let alone run this multi-billion dollar company. Let alone get his sister in line. Right? Exactly, yeah. And so he is, he is embodying the emptiness that Logan kind of never really it, there is a the conversation in the diner with with his bodyguard where he seems to point to like he basically is like well yeah I am the demon of neoliberalism and I walk in this world and there is no nothing beyond it but but beyond that like he doesn't 
he's not a figure of pathos. And he's also not a figure of reflection. No. Right. Whereas Kendall, by the end of this, is just shattered. And uh, Shiv is driving away with Tom, right? And Tom has been longstanding and, you know, and now is Tom is the successor, right? And he's, and, uh, and Roman gets to do something else. So to which there's a third option here of like, Roman's yeah. drinking Jerry's favorite drink. That's right. By right. the way. Oh, is he really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and smiling to himself, which I love that detail. Yeah. I mean, you you have to wonder where whether Roman is actually like free yeah. here. Like I, I was saying this to Dan because uh, um, I went over to to, to Dan to, to watch this because Patrick goes to bed early. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to see it when it... Uh, um, on on Sunday night. Um, but I was saying that I think Naomi Pierce is the person earlier in the series who has, she actually like, she's a fail daughter, but of the Pierce dynasty. Um, and like, um, like Kendall, she struggles with her sobriety, but she's also, I mean, this isn't true later in the show, but when she first shows up, she's just kind of pieced out from her family. She's like, what if you just take the billions <laughs> and don't, decide that the point of your life is to spend it in these remarkably similar boardrooms. She's uh-huh. she's also inhabiting a little bit of Shiv too in that moment yeah. back there because she, the reason she came to the compound to watch this happen was because I think her line was something like, I like to see my family squirm. Yeah. So it's, it, it is still a little bit of like, she's gotten out, she's living her own life. Yeah. She's benefiting from billions of dollars at her disposal, but she still can't get away from wanting to see her parents killed. <laughs> yeah. She still can't you're get right. Away from that. You're right. Um, but she's less, uh, she seems less dominated by that. Yeah. Than, and that mm-hmm. is the central, you know, like that's the central part of this show is like, why on earth would people with every opportunity, all of the money, why would they organize themselves around this task that seems like actually thankless? Yes. Um, extremely boring. Yes. Um, and turns you into monster into a monster, and it seems to be just because it's what they're given, right? It's the it's the paternal template. Well, but it's, also it's because the world. they're told what to want, and this brings yeah, us back, yeah. I think, to the, the question of of desire. Is like this is because this whole family, and this is also very Freudian too, right? Like one of the things that's that's very interesting to me about uh, the generation that comes after Freud, and I'm particularly thinking about uh, like not only like literally like his daughter. Anna Freud um, or Melanie Klein or like especially a lot of the other women analysts is like Freud himself is really hung up on fathers um, like f- in, in a way that, you know, psychoanalysis will later become m- much more organized around the figure of the mother. Um, and and there's some way in, in to the extent that this show is classically Freudian, it is because it is about it. It, it is about the destruction of. And the the ambivalent love and hate for the father and the need to destroy him, um, like that's the part of Oedipus that is really, I think, dominates all of them one way or another. Maybe not Roman. Can I just point one other thing out? Yeah, please. Yeah. It, well, just to build on what you were saying before about the the it at the center of all of this and yeah. how it, it it I think maybe the most brilliant thing that the show's production half gets right about this is it is shot in a way that that it never looks desirable. Yeah. Never a yeah. single time, which is probably why people turn to trying to identify with the characters in it and not, like I, I think about, um. do you guys remember that show, um, Downton Abbey? 
Yeah. When the trick in that show was mm-hmm. like when it was in the kitchen, it's shaky cam, handheld, narrow yeah. focus. And then when it's above ground, the the way the camera is held, it's tripod, like stable shot. Yeah. And the way the editing is done. Upstairs, downstairs Yeah. Show. Well, yeah. the camera work itself. Right. It, it, it performs upstairs, downstairs well, in it, the camera work. It reinforces the regency when yeah. it's upstairs. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it doesn't when it's downstairs. This show here, all of the like beauty that they're surrounded by, you got the establishing, uh, establishing shot. You see the lovely lake town and the helicopter coming in. It all looks luxurious. But once the characters start interacting, the camera's always moving so much. People are still like, it, nothing is desirable about what's going on. And the very end, Shiv is facing away from the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. (laughs) It's like, sure, I'm in Rubedos. Let's just look away. So even Um, things like the, the, the shallow depth of field in the focus of the camera, the way that it's edited, the way the performers are allowed to walk all over each other, all yeah. of that also feels on theme to this. Yeah. And it, it's, it's remarkable. It, it's, it's a, it's, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I think one thing that's really interesting, and I want to go back and rewatch the scene with Logan in the diner with his uh, sort of like his conciliate. Colin. Colin. Yeah. Like is this thing that, and, and, and again, like I, part of what's playing in the background here, right. Is, is like the basic fact that I don't give a, I don't think any of us give a fuck who runs Fox news. Right. Or like if like I would, I want to read Wendy Deng's memoir. Right. But like, do I have like a earnest, compassionate, direct stake in the infighting of a family of people who I think are predatory and parasitical, um, you know, fail children. Like this is like, like really telegraphing tightened examples of families rising and falling in America. Like, sure. like, like it, it's, it's two generations, right? It's what I mean, like, like the, I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that fucking like Kendall is, is, is in the final scene is gazing off at a dim looking, you not in focus. You can't even see it. His eyes are not even in focus. Statue of Liberty. Right. Like I don't give a shit. None of us give a shit. Yeah. Right. And yet we find this watchable. And the question is why. Right. And it's, it's not even really because of like the porny beautifulness of the, uh, of the landscapes or the clothing or anything. Well, it's that's not, not a white know, lotus, yeah. No, it's, it's, but it is something about the character of the drama and the drama which is legible, even as he's legibly human, but, 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 but like legibly human to the extent to which like it speaks to certain features of, of family, of, of, of life under capitalism and more, right? That, that I think are compelling. Sure. But also too, like I like just, the narrowing of imaginative possibilities for yeah. how you can act. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, like, at the end of the day, like Roman is a monster and a brute with blood on his hands. That's I read that Roman. But Logan is a is a monster and a, and a brute with yeah. blood on his hands. Clearly, mm-hmm. right. And and it's not coincidental that right his brother mentions that you know he should be in hell for his impact on the environment alone. Right. Mm-hmm. But one thing is very clear about the man which is that he knows what he wants. Yeah. Up until the point that he dies reaching for his iPhone in his in, in the toilet on his private plane, right? Mm-hmm. Like he wanted you know, that scene he this scene on the floor in ATN, right right he's or even that like again I go back to that conversation with Colin where he basically he describes how the world is governed by markets that help shape that give expression to what people want and that also help shape what they want, mm-hmm. right? And so if there's any one thing Logan if other people are like on the one hand, yes, Logan wants certain things, but more than anything else, 
he understands what other people want, or at least what a large number of other people want in terms of fear, in terms of you know the industries that he's he's he's, he's carrying water for, in terms of IP value, all that shit. Sure, and. He wants his pile. He wants that billion. Make his own pile. Be a dragon who sits on it, right? All that stuff, right? But what he really is, almost anything else, is is is, is he just wants, yeah, right? He's a creature of want, and, and 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 in this ravenous way where he can perceive what others want, and, and and he can achieve what he wants. But that's the register in which he operates. His kids are sort of a shadow of that. This right? is the. Fi- I mean, and this is like the question of like whether or not like did they, did they all have to be. Fail sons, failed. I guess she has a failed daughter. Do they like? Why do they want this, right? And, and one way, you know, I said I think multiple critics are like, well, they all want it because they want something from their dad. They want to be the dad. They want the dad's love. They want to be the dad's grandkids. Whatever. But like, they all whatever it is that they want, mm-hmm. it's almost precisely because they're being given. They've gotten everything, mm-hmm. but also they've gotten so little from him, mm-hmm. who is this titan of wanting that they don't know what they want. And the second that they land on, I, I mean, that's one of the reasons this is so full of like harebrained schemes. Yes. Um, is because like they, they, they latch onto a task and then they can want to carry it out. They don't, it's like they don't have a destiny. Like this is, this, I think this is what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about, well, I'm there's about, no there there. I mean, this is yeah. what Roman says at the end where he's just like, we're bullshit. Yeah. Like we're all bullshit. And like somehow that sets him free. But I guess I'm asking you the question and I, cause I don't yeah. know. And so this is, is, yeah. is of like, do you read this show as being like, it had to be this way? I think so. I think, let, let me run with this for, let me go for one second. Cause like, I think like part of what's going on is like that they are, I'm I'm trying to think of it's that scene where Kendall basically becomes like a some other kind of monster, right? He 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 won't take responsibility. Not only will he not take responsibility for a death for which he is responsible, mm-hmm. he denies that it ever even happens. He won't blind himself mm-hmm. in pain of loss. Yeah. He'll blind his brother. Mm-hmm. I don't again, I can't do obverse, inverse, reverse, whatever, but he's there's some sort of Edible thing. He's some sort of Oedipus there, right? Like some sort of, well, whatever he is as an Oedipus, at least in these, in, with those ingredients on the table, also relates to the fact that he's given, he is also like everyone, all the other kids ha, is making a bid for what he feels to be his destiny, mm-hmm. but which also he can't have, mm-hmm. right? So it's almost like by the end of it, he has arrived at a he's so empty and so lost. I'm sorry if this sounds so vague and maybe we'll need to trim it, but it's like he's, he doesn't know. It's not just that he doesn't know what he wants, right? But that he was given this destiny and it seemed to be straightforward, but he didn't even interrogate whether or not he wants that thing. It's just so given that he would. I I don't know. That probably doesn't make sense. We need to cut it, but you follow what I'm saying? No, I don't. I think, no, I I get what you're saying. I'm not sure I agree with you. Um, because it seems to me like he's the only one that like, you know, like anoint me. That's, yeah, that's, that's the one the, yeah, that yeah. is, it's not that he wants to do the job. It's that's that right. he wants to have the job. That's right. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. But like Kendall actually goes to business school. Yeah. Like he, he I mean, the yeah. Hanna-Barbera school. Yeah. All <laughs> no, he does no, is speak business school. No, yeah, but like yeah. he, he goes to, he has a Harvard MBA yeah. in, in the show. Um, Like, the other two, really, it's sort of like, are you fucking kidding? Yeah. Um, I mean, Kendall is obviously like a fool and incredibly weak and has no spine and all of all of these things. 
But there's some part of it that makes sense. And like, there's a purity to his desire that, that is legible. Yeah. I think. Um, purity of heart is to want only one thing. Uh, yeah, sure. Sure. That's Kierkegaard, right? Uh, I don't think that's what Kierkegaard meant by that though. Um, but I guess what, can I, do you mind if I go back to my question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I, my question is in some ways about psychic determinism within yes. this show. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Is like, and that's one of the reasons I was bringing up, oh, I can never remember her name. What's her name? Pierce, N- not Nan Pierce. Yeah. Uh, Naomi Pierce. Yes. Okay. Um, who again gets, ki- she kind of leaves. Yeah. She's at loose end. Um, you know, like, do you think that the argument of this show is that the psychological logic is such that this was inevitable? I think, okay, here's what- That's what I'm That's saying. what I'm saying. Okay, here's what, here's what I think I'd say. Like, what I think I'm trying, and this, actually, I am trying, I was trying to get at it kind of clumsily with this question of destiny and wanting and knowing what you want. These kids, the kids, or these, these middle, midlife crisis having adults- whatever it is that they want and whatever it is they think their destiny is, is shaped by the, the wanting and the legacy, the fulfilled destiny, if you want to call it that, of Logan Roy. And for reasons that may well involve um, the contingencies of, uh, of immigration, of historical trauma, of World War II, of the death of uh, Logan's sister, that the plague right. that he gave her, and that he actually does feel guilt. Mm-hmm. Like it's very interesting, right? Like he is haunted by guilt over the sister who he may have infected with something, whereas his son is like, "I wasn't even in the car when it did a Chappaquiddick," right? Like there is no thing for them to succeed in some way. Like, and, and I think this is maybe in the backdrop here too is some sort of like political economic media stuff about like this company much like Logan is not, it couldn't exist after him. Yeah, it's moribund. But it's moribund industrially too. And yeah. the sector yeah, yeah, is yeah, done, yeah. right? So they're all looking to- Yeah, fulfill, the idea that they wouldn't sell it is ridiculous. They're looking to fulfill a destiny yeah. that wasn't even theirs in wasn't the first available. place. Wasn't available. Yeah. And, but they're hamstrung by it. And in that way, maybe we can take this as a kind of metaphor about psychic determinism and about like evading edible traps. Because again, if an edible trap is either- be dad and it's and be dominated by him be dominated him be dominated by him by not being him at every turn or figuring out some way of your own that changes your relationship to how you relate to him mm-hmm. those two options are real hard for the children of logan roy in the year 2023 right and it's almost and this is i think part of now we can make it we can talk about some other things i am another episode we want to talk about like wealth and unhappiness in this way, right? But like, it's precisely because Logan has fulfilled in this monstrous way whatever his destiny is, even as he's passed it on to them. And it's precisely because they have such wealth that they don't need to work, that they not only have to, they don't have to do anything and they want for nothing, they can't do anything and they can't get what they want. Or want anything. Yeah. So what they're left with are just these sort of like, abysses of need and this constant jockeying within very static or very old family patterns of dominance and cruelty and revenge. And while at the same time, and I think the, the, uh, one of the eulogies in the second to last episode gets at this, that is happening 
at the center of a nexus that's also like broadcasting outward into people's homes, right? Into political movements, all these affects of people who can't get what they want and they've been denied their birthright Mm -hmm. and they're going to reclaim it. And, you know, it's someone else is getting away with something that they don't, they should, they don't deserve. Right. It's, it's, it's this perfect combination of uh, like an older generation of an apex predator in an environment of increasing social meanness and, and like precarization and these kids who are at the top and who have everything are actually... They're so psychologically impoverished. Yeah. To the point that it's just a given to them that they could just like keep running this heinous enterprise without even really thinking about how heinous it is. She's just the only one that comes even close to it. But it's like, that's just what's given to them. But they can't even pull that off. It's kind of funny that Kendall Roy, there's one episode where he is kind of running the company. And that's when he gets up on stage and promises his customers eternal life. (laughs) (laughs) I think actually what may have happened here, and this may be reflected in the the way this episode talked out, right? Is like, on the one hand, we have this very complicated thing to to unpack, namely about the Oedipus complex in Freud and then the Oedipus complex sort of structurally and then the phallus structurally, right? Which I think was a lot to get through. But that gave us a first pass at thinking about this text and this cast of characters. And I feel like as we consume other media products, but also as we revisit these themes, we're probably going to be coming back to a lot of this and some of these questions um, and dynamics are going to emerge as, as you know, we may revise some things. Like I kind of want to go, like very practically, I want to go back and watch some, I want to watch the episode where they go back to Scotland, right? And that trauma is initially like briefly alluded to with his sister. Mm-hmm. Um I'm also really curious what, what, what people who are listening and who are on the Discord or, or you know, want to comment on Patreon, like what they sort of think about this, right? Because I, because without treating this as like a sandbox for proving psychoanalytic concepts, I think we're what this film gives. What this was the series of, of, of well, it was film length in the end, but what the series of of, of seasons give us is a world of both fa- is a world of political economy and libidinal economy. And like this thing that's called the family are so intertwined yeah, and so overcoded, even in the ways in which it is like too glib or too ironic or too self-knowing that I think we can't but come back to it later one way or another. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, we're going to talk, um, we've already recorded this episode, but you haven't heard it yet. We're going to talk with Christine Smallwood about uh, Beyond and uh, experiences in groups. And one of the things that, we end up asking over and over again is like, why is group life so hard? <laughs> why is it so hard? Uh, and I think this this is a show about family life. And yes. that's, that's so, sort of like, it is impossible to be in a family. It is impossible to not be in a family. <laughs> like it is, it is entirely about like the double binds um, of, uh, of being and not being in those familial relationships. This was fun. I liked, uh, I liked, obviously succession was a, a big tentpole thing that just wrapped up. And it, uh, clearly we've been talking for, I, 
I don't know how long this episode is going to turn out to be, but for a very long time very about long time. the show, um, we should do this. We should do this again. We started oh. recording in season two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going to feel like it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm going to be on the, the lookout for uh, it's true. I don't know, more media like this. I want to, I want to break some more stuff like this down with you guys. It's yeah. So I think if people want to recommend us stuff, um, I mean, we can't, we can't guarantee that we'll, we'll watch it all, but uh, I think there are, are texts out there. And, and I, I think we, what we're trying to do here, hopefully is a little bit different from being like succession, good or succession, bad, right, or right, like right. succession, you good, like succession, no, you bad. <laughs> right. Right. I, I, I think we can, we can bracket that type of stuff within the, the nice psychoanalytic space of being beyond good and evil. Uh, yeah. yeah. I guess I'll say just one thing, which is that I like to watch dumb TV sometimes, like when when I'm tired of doing all of the like theoretical work that that is like my normal like reading for my life, like 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 for 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 jobs for work. I'm like being so in. We've been in this room for so long. Yeah, I like yeah, no yeah, can no yeah. longer even produce verbiage. Um, and and one of the things I think is very interesting. Um, this is not dumb TV. Obviously, Succession is not dumb TV. Um, I am always struck by how wise dumb TV is about families, actually. And and so I, I don't think that Succession is actually any smarter yeah. about family. I actually think that's one of those things where, where um, once you go and look at, I, I guess I don't really watch reality TV, but uh, um, but it's sort of just sort of like, cultural products that that are designed to to reach a much wider audience than succession is you see the same fucking themes you know what i mean like something that to distinguish succession here is i think it's just it poses itself the premise of the show is a psychoanalytic premise yeah. but in that way it's really just making text what is subtext um everywhere else which is the absolute preoccupation um that you see in so many places with like, how do I determine what it means to be a self when I'm also a member of a family? Whether or not your family is the Roy's, <laughs> you know, or uh, or something a little bit less malignant. Thank you so much for going on this uh, journey uh, to Waystar Royco with us this week. And we will be back next week with Christine Smallwood on Wilfred Beam. So don't forget to tune in for that. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Love you. Hate you. Daddy? <laughs> All right. Goodbye. <laughs>